Hi, I'm Joe Lindsay. Welcome to How's the Form, a podcast for men in, let's say, the second half of life, like myself, over 50. How's the Form is brought to you by AGNI and is part of the Good Vibrations Over 50s Men's Health Programme, which is funded by Movember. My guest this week is one of the best-known faces in Northern Ireland hospitality, a celebrated chef and trailblazer of Belfast restaurant revolution, and still sports an enviable head of her, damn him. It's Michael Dean. So our guest today, some may call him Michael Dean, I call him Michael the Dawn. <laughs> Michael Dean, welcome. Thank you. How's the form? Um, same as ever was, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Every day is a new day. Nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, you recently, congratulations, you recently got a, an amazing review from Jay Rayner, which is yes, not easy. He's yes, quite harsh. Yeah, he's probably probably the hardest. Mm. Um, I saw he did a, a review a few months ago about that guy, Salt Bay, the salt guy, you know, yeah. when he opened in London. And I think it was about £120 for a steak or something. And then Jay Rayner got a table and parked it outside the restaurant and ordered a kebab. <laughs> and ordered the steak. Yeah. Dick and Perry thought the kebab was better, so I thought maybe we were in for a, a hard time. But no, fair play to him. Mm. Uh, it's good to see a good review, a, a restaurant get a good review anywhere in Northern Ireland. How do you think, can I ask this, right? I mean, when you see a critic come in, do you know they're coming that day? Sometimes. Right. Um, sometimes And not. do you change it up? Do you go, right, there's a critic coming? Do you let the kitchen staff know that they kind of we up the game? Or do you make well, a point well, of we give but, them what everyone else gets? But you've already got the gravy made, as I would say. <laughs> You know, right. so the same guys are still there. And it's like Paul Bacuse. When you used to ask Paul Bacuse, when they say, who cooks the food when you're not there? He says, the same people who cook the food when I am there. Yeah. You know, so it's um, it's a catch-22. And if there's a critic comes in, a critic comes in. I've fallen out with a lot of them over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, a critic's job is to recommend a restaurant to go to. It's not to, to find a place up Donegal, up the hills in Donegal, serving stale scones, and they send people there. And that's a bit of a common denominator in Ireland that people mm. follow some of these critics, and uh, they should be able to work it out themselves. Where's, where's yeah. good and where's bad, really, you know? Mm. And, um, yeah, but we, we go along with it. I mean, do you still, I mean, is it something that you still kind of go, well, you know, it's important to have good reviews? Do you still get annoyed if you get, if you get a bad review? Well, I do, but I mean, if there's bums on seats and the customers are happy mm. and the staff are happy, and um, I, I find I'll be able to do that in Belfast, even as, as we were saying earlier, at night time, Belfast can, it's a difficult city now um, between between taxis and transport and people's mm-hmm. livelihoods. And a lot of people are fighting a lot of battles out there. But I, I find if people are in the restaurant, we tr- I try to make them happy. And um, a customer is not always a customer, but they are the customer. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think we've done pretty well over the years and we're still there. See, you've always said that. I've read some interviews with you, and you've always said that uh, the critics come secondary. It's the people who are coming in and paying for the meal, and they're sitting down. It's the customers. Their opinion matters more to you and to your staff. They they are, but and there's some people, some some customers come in in bad form and they leave in bad form, and we try to make their 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 experience as pleasant as we possibly can, mm. and it, it doesn't always work. I, I find it that when I'm going round to tables at night, I usually stay away from tables of two because the twos are usually arguing. The fours <laughs> are the one will be having the crack or the sixes, <laughs> but the twos are usually falling out. So I try to avoid it unless somebody really wants to speak to me. You don't need to get involved with that, do you? No. I mean, you're a real pioneer of this industry. Like when you come back to Northern Ireland, you were working Claridge's at the time. I did a bit of travelling, yeah. I mean, yeah. what made you kind of come back here? Because at that time, to put it in context, this is pre peace process. We were still had the troubles. We didn't have fine. I think the most fine dining we had here was a chicken Maryland at Chalet Door. Yeah, well, in Belfast. But you came back to do that. I mean, what made you do that? That was well, a big risk. There was a few pioneers before myself and 
the Paul Rankin boy. Um, there was a, there was number number ten Hillsborough, yeah. which was out there, which was doing reasonable food, but it was classical, classical bass, classical turned around, and um, I just well, I was a Belfast boy and I wanted to come home. Right. Um, I was at Dorchester actually. I I, I, I finished my. Oh, so time I thought it was Claridge's you were at the time, no? Brilliant. I thought it was Claridge's you were. Oh, at I, the started time. In Claridge's, oh okay. I started in Claridge's. I started in Claridge's washing pots and doing all sorts of silly things. And I when I first went to London, I, I slept in. Uh, Cardboard City at Waterloo. There, they oh. got tried to find some accommodation. It's very difficult for um, a Belfast boy with long black hair in the seventies, and uh, yeah, it was a bit rough here and there. Yeah, how did you get into it? I mean, these these weren't industries that were kind of you know, being from Belfast, we were an industrial city. Yeah, you know, this is a city that built ships, the city that built things, things like kind of. Uh, I don't know making clothes or cutting hair or cooking food weren't considered industry. So how did how did you get into it? I, I wanted out of school, right? And I was either going to cut hair, I right. left out the post effort. <laughs> uh, I was going to cut hair or I wanted to cook. So the troubles were quite heavy then. Mm. And my father had a big job in a, a television company in Belfast, and he was getting a hard enough time. And we moved down the coast down to Donegal Groomsport, and I got a job in the Imperial Hotel in Donegal when I was fourteen, fifteen. And I thought this was brilliant, you know. And I was cooking those breaded place fillets, you know, those things with the orange oh, bread yeah. crumbs on them. <laughs> and opening these boxes with the black fire scattered. And I thought that was cooking. I thought that was really cooking. I hadn't a clue. I wasn't one of those people who was taught to cook by my mother. Right. You know, I was like every other Belfast mother. We were brought up in flavour at the steak and kidney pies and uh, lovely things like that. So I, I, I didn't have a good start when it comes to, you know, when you look at the French, when the French grew up in a, in a family home, yeah. they know what Fogra is probably when they're six years old. Yeah. And um, so I just said, God, but if I'm going to do this, I may get out of here. Yeah. And I, I just headed, headed to London and uh, took it from there. Probably spent too long there and I travelled a bit after that, but uh, I find the London life very, very difficult. Mm. Very difficult for Irish boy. How did it feel when you brought the Michelin star uh, to your first restaurant? Here? Well, we got it in, in um, a couple of years after Paul. Um, and actually, Robbie got his before me because yeah. I remember um, I got a phone call from Michelin and it was a bit of price of wine list or whatever. And we had heard there was a new star in Ireland, in Northern mm. Ireland, there was a new star. And I said, Could I? And I said to the inspector, Could you tell me where it is? He says, It's in Shanks and Clanny Boy Estate. Do you know I never left the restaurant for a year after that? Really? I never left. I slept in there. I scratched in there. I tortured the staff in there. I didn't leave it for a year. I just didn't open the door and I got my head down and we got ours the next year. Wow. That shows you how... The, the Michelin thing is very powerful. It, it's of very course. powerful, especially in those days. It was very powerful. And um, the way the world's going now, I mean, we've handed ours back now. Right. Um, because... I always said, if I don't have the people who are that motivated to do it, I won't go back in myself to do it. So it's time. It's time for something else for me. Right. But you held it longer than any other restaurant. So about 25 years all together. Yeah. And for, for That's not it, any restaurant in Ireland. Um, no, Patty Cable was, Patty Cable in Dublin has held it longer than me. I think. Really? Yeah, I think he's a bit longer, a bit older too. Right, okay. But Cable, I, I'm very, very successful restaurant. Um, during that time of Michelin, after Robbie died in the car crash, we were sort of 10 years all together, span against the stars. And then when he died, I was stood by myself upstairs in Danes for about 10 years as the only starred restaurant. Yeah. And then you have Ox come along, you've got Mothers, and it's a bit of fresh blood in it, a bit of more youth. And yeah, Belfast is a, good, a reasonably good food city. Yeah, yeah. As, um, 
as far as I'm concerned. It's not Copenhagen. It should be more like it. Yeah. I remember cooking in a bank in Copenhagen in about 1980 when I came back for the tourist board. And Copenhagen was as backward as we were then. Right. And all of a sudden now it's probably one of the major food cities mm -hmm. in the world. And we just haven't moved probably because of the political situation. All sorts of... Uh, things on the table why we haven't moved but it's, it's getting better it's getting better yeah. it's good restaurants what is your approach to cuisine like, what's your approach when you when, I mean when you were setting your restaurants up and even now as a chef what is your approach what's the most important aspect of it for you well I mean it's that the produce is important right. the food's the food's got to be key and the service has got to be key um, atmosphere um, location there's a lot of things and uh, I mean I think if you speak to a bank when they speak to a bank they'll tell you that the failure rate of restaurants, I think, is about 12 and 13. Wow. The bank don't lend people opening restaurants money anymore because mm. they're very, very, very difficult. And when you look, people thought probably see this as a grey area, but when you look at when the minimum wage went up mm -hmm. last year and it's about to go up again, I put £200,000 on a wage bill. £200,000 a year on wow. a wage bill. Along with, they said it's caused by the war with the energy, we're carrying forty thousand pounds of unsecretary energy. Yeah. On top of that, so people say we'll have to suck it up, and I say, well, we're going to suck it up with. Yeah, exactly. You How know, do you but do the, that? the price of food is crazy. Mm -hmm. People's own problems at home with mortgages and interest rates and shopping—it's difficult. Yeah. And I think it's going to become more difficult before it gets any better. Yeah. And it's up for me. You know, people say to me, "What do you do?" I say, "I fight fire." That's what I do every day. I fight yeah. fire. And I try to manage my people and the business the best way I can. I don't know if the fun and the enjoyments are anymore. I think if I had a look back and people say to me, if people were to tell me what's like it was going to be, yeah, like now I probably would have said I would have had to be away. Really, and you know, going back to that the terrible word, the COVID word. Yeah, I probably really did think heavily about packing it in during COVID. I had enough to live forever. Mm. But have more than half now. Wow! Okay. And COVID, I think COVID, more or less single-handedly destroyed hospitality. It did. On, on on the back of the European Union exit, there's a lot of our staff, um, from from Europe, Lithuania, Hungary, Russia, disappeared. weren't allowed back in. Yeah. They weren't allowed back in, and then within the last couple of days, I'd say we're about thirty staff short. Within the last couple of days, when uh, it one of the government ministers throws thirty-eight thousand pounds in as a any import and any any worker that comes in from abroad, mm. the wage you've got to pay them is thirty-eight grand for somebody to start and wash and break plates. Yeah, you know. So to me, that doesn't add up. I can't. The business model to me doesn't add up anymore. Mm -hmm. So we just have to work with what we've got. Mm. The government will say, "Oh well, the British workers will fill in the gaps," but they're not. Mm. They're not filling. You know, we used to have an exchange policy with France, French students and colleges. We would do a swap. Yeah. Each year, and they were not allowed to do that. We're not. We're not bringing in any other cultures. We're not bringing any more life into the food industry. It's going to become kind of a cultural cul-de-sac, isn't it? Isn't it just? Yeah. You, you, who, I love going into a restaurant and listening to a French waiter yeah. or an Irish waiter, yeah. but whatever. But but now it's getting very very few and far between that we're getting we're getting talent from abroad. You know, there's there's, yeah. there's nobody there anymore. So we, we've got to work with what we got. We're continuing to work with what we got until until it's over. I don't think they'll fix it. Until it's completely broken. Well, yeah, see, that seems to be the way it's going, actually. Yeah. It turns everything off. Yeah. 
I mean, we, you know, we all, everyone's kind of familiar with, through series like The Bear or something like Boiling Point of just how stressful running a restaurant is and for a chef running a kitchen is. Yeah. There seems to be such a high level of stress. How do you cope with that? Well, I, I think being the chef is maybe the easy bit. It's it's a, running out of the restaurant, um, listening to the, the, the accountants. Without the accountants, the business doesn't run. Um, listening, then you've got all the legal bits. You know, you're allowed to, you're not allowed to speak to people the way you do anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the suppliers give barking at you for credit, wasn't paid. Everybody is, seems to be quite worried because restaurants go down. I think it's about six restaurants a week in Britain go down, and wow. about ten pubs. Wow, yeah. You know, and if you Tom Carriage goes on and speaks very well in the, in in defence of us. Um, but nobody's really listening to him either. It's just the way it is. They're closing, closing, closing. And when you look at the city, our city, our beautiful city, which I was born in, it's going to be full of the corporates, you know. The, yeah. It's going to be off McDonald's. We'll see Prep Manger's in. I mean, and, and for play, these people are still a business. But Belfast always liked homegrown talent yeah. on the street. Because you always praise the produce from here. You praise things yeah. like... Uh, the beef from this country. The beef's the good, the, the fish the is good, yeah. um, the vegetables are good, the organic farmers are working. That was something you always made a point of doing, supporting local. Yes. Yeah. Even if probably, it probably cost you more. Yeah, it does. I mean, we, we find out now, I mean, even even though we get a lot of produce from Dublin, which is still on land, mm. um, we don't buy as much from France or that as we used to. It's expensive. Yeah. And uh, I like to cook local food. I think some of our um, produce has always been amazing. Our suppliers, we support uh, as much as we can, but then they've got to make a living too. So the yeah. prices are sky high. Who ever thought you'd be going into a restaurant and paying forty pounds, forty two pounds for a full steak? Who ever thought in their wildest dreams? Who can afford that? Anyway? You know. So, you know. Yeah. So we're 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 being pushed. We've been pushed to the edge. Yeah. Did you find? I mean, you're extremely successful as a restaurateur. Did you find the more successful you got, the more restaurants you got, did it more responsibility, more stress, or did it get easier? I find that the bank make the windows that small you can't get back out you know and I've, I've had restaurants sort of failed I whenever mean, um, I opened my um, my Asian sort of restaurant before the deli um, it was called after my son who was born in Thailand and when we opened it we're still waiting for people to come in it just mm. didn't work right. and I kept it for a year and the bank kept phoning me and saying you know you're going to have to spend some of your own money you can't keep spending our money and they were about to close it and I says, well, give me, give me, give me one more chance. Says, oh, you have no more money. So I closed it on a Friday, the 7th of December, I think. And I put a couple of canopies out and we painted it and we called it Dean's Deli. Mm. And we changed it completely and transformed yeah. it. And we served steak and chips, we served fish and chips, we served breakfast, we served whatever. And um, when I look back, Dean's Deli was probably one of the best things I ever did. Mm. But it was taken away by COVID. Yeah. You know, and it destroyed and dismantled and... Uh, as if it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But let's give a million pounds to Royal Port Rush Golf Club. Let's give somebody else this. Let's mm -hmm. give somebody else that. So we lost that business and um, it was never to recover. Mm. How do you kind of relax after all this? I mean, you, you work in one of the most stressful industries. It's something you care passionately about. You put so much of yourself into it. Yeah. What do you keep back for yourself and how do you relax? How do you decompress after that? I don't. Ever. I don't. I mean, I do a bit of work in the gym. I might not show in December, but I do work in the gym. I run a bit. I... Um, I cook a bit in the house. Yeah. Bit, that's a different type of cooking. Um, I just, but I'm always thinking about the job. Mm. You know, I'm always thinking about it, how I make it work, how I make it better. Um, I suppose one should be better rewarded for the amount one would put in. Yeah. 
you know, should be sitting with maybe 20, 30 million pounds in the bank, but we're not, you know, and um, I, I believe in what I'm doing. I've always believed in, in the product and the staff and the people and that um, I don't really, I, I would try to think and care more about the staff than I care about myself, to be honest with mm. you, you know. How do you maintain your health through this? I mean, both physical and mental health. How do you kind of take care of yourself with all this pressure? Nothing shocks me. That's all, you know. <laughs> Every day there's a another issue, whether it be COVID, Brexit, another decision government's making. Uh, COVID was absolutely horrible. Hmm. COVID was the worst thing ever happened. And uh, not that I don't agree we shouldn't have been locked down. I, I, I Once would have been enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, we changed boilers. We had hand sanitizers. We invested heavily even when we were closed mm-hmm. with outside space, um, hot water, keeping tables apart. And I do not think that the restaurant was responsible for spreading COVID. Mm. No, I really, I really, really believe that. Um, but it definitely happened in people's homes when they were like, they didn't know what to do. How did you keep going through that? And not not as a business, but as, as a person, how did you keep going through? Well, that? my head, my head was down a, a lot. Um, it took me a lot to gather myself every day mm. to get up and and do it. I remember walking up on Malone Road and down the Lisburn Road, and I felt like a criminal. That you know, you go down to the range. And it was open. People mm-hmm. in shopping, people um, packed together in Marks and Spencers, lifting, touching, whatever. Yet it wasn't laid open in a restaurant, and it felt as if I'd done stuff. I was a criminal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fair play to Nolan, they let me on every day. Mm-hmm. And I said, Stephen, you have to let me speak. And he did. But very, very difficult to fight with death. You know, when Tom Black's mm-hmm. telling you there's 40 people died today and this and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And if you're having Christmas this year, don't hug your granny. Mm. You know, when you have a buffet and all that, and advice, doctors advising me what I should be doing in a restaurant that wasn't even allowed in. Mm. So I got, I, I took it all, I took it all very thick. Yeah. You know, and we lost a lot of money, and you know, we're still having to pay our suppliers. Yeah. I still kept all my staff on. Right. Even though they got this wonderful furlough money, mm. it did help save. But then after furlough, people didn't really want to work that hard. Mm-hmm. It changed the whole face of the whole UK workforce. Mm. And now we're hundreds of thousands of people short across UK, and we're not allowed foreigners in. And when they announced, I was I was on the radio the other day with a, a one of the Tory one of the Tory Conservative ministers, Northern Ireland Conservatives, and we were talking about the immigration policy. Now upstairs in the hotel, we've got 150 people living it from various from Albania or whatever they're from. Mm-hmm. Lovely people. Now when they come down, they want to work. Yeah. They're doctors, they're solicitors, they want yeah. to work, they're stuck in a room upstairs and they're not allowed to work. And I says, well, we've got three or four colleges which are at the cost of millions of pounds, mm-hmm. millions of pounds. Why not put them in the colleges and train them? And instead of giving them 38 grand, maybe give them 28 to put them mm-hmm. in and fill the gaps and train them. He said, well, that might be on down the road somewhere. I says, well, there's going to be no road left because we're running out of it. Yeah. You know, so the whole, the whole policy of these people not being allowed to work and this Rwanda and everything else. They've, they've lost control of the country right. and the confidence of the country. And they've definitely lost control of the business people. Yeah. And um, But there's nobody listening. Yeah. You know, nobody listening to us. We just have to keep going. And there's another restaurant closes. I mean, where, what have I closed? I've closed Dean's Deli. I closed the Vin Cafe. I closed Dean and the Cano because we've got a high rent rate, whatever. We're about to close our fine dining restaurant and try to amalgamate what we have left. So yeah. I'll be left with three good big restaurants and hopefully they'll be enough. Um, there's no point keep running up the hill. 
Let's take a short break there and head over to the doctor's surgery for a reminder about some ways we can be a little bit healthier. I'm Dr. Alan Stout and I'm a GP. If I can share one thing, it's this. I see far too many men coming in too late. If men would just get checked out by a doctor a bit sooner, I know for sure that lives could be saved and men's health improved. So I'm gonna share some of the things men should look out for and why they matter, and most importantly, what to do about them. Today, we're talking about the C word. Why do we call it this? Men don't like to talk about cancer. Men's cancer in particular usually involves parts of us or bodily functions we'd rather not talk about, never mind get checked by a doctor. As a GP, I can tell you, we've seen and heard it all. It's water off a duck's back. Let's talk about cancer, please. Because the sooner you do, the more likely it is that you'll recover, and that's a fact. So what are the telltale signs that something is serious or might be going on? Different types of cancer have different symptoms, but if you notice any of these general things, do not put it off. Please contact your GP straight away. So a new lump, bump or swelling anywhere on your body or a sore that doesn't heal, which includes inside your mouth. Skin changes like a new mole or changes in the color, shape and size of existing moles. Unexplained bleeding or coughing up blood, which includes traces of blood in your pee or in your poo. Sudden weight loss, which is not related to dieting. Constantly feeling tired, exhausted or worn out. A cough that lasts more than three weeks or changes in your voice and feeling short of breath. Changes in your bowel or bladder habits, such as prolonged constipation, diarrhea, or problems passing urine. Difficulty swallowing, persistent indigestion, heartburn, or a feeling of being bloated, or a pain that doesn't go away. If you're listening to this thinking some of this might be relevant to you, first of all, don't panic. Do not automatically think the worst, and many of these symptoms do have other explanations. The absolute key is don't bury your head in the sand. You're far more likely to survive cancer if you spot it early and act fast. I'll be talking about a few of the cancers that affect men most in other episodes. Many serious conditions are preventable and with early detection, many are treatable. If you're in doubt, please make an appointment with your GP and get it checked out. HNI's Good Vibrations programme is for men over 50. If you or someone you know could use some advice or support on health, well-being or mental health, there's lots more information online at ageni.org forward slash iConnect. That's letter I-C-O-N-N-E-C-T. Or visit ageni.org forward slash good vibrations to sign up for monthly emails with expert tips and information. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. The HNI Good Vibrations team are here with help and support. I've, I've met some great people. I've met some wonderful you, famous You have people. a great legacy here. Like I was yeah. saying, like you're, you're not the Dean, you're the Don. People look to you as the Don. You have a great legacy in this country. Well, probably because I'm a bit older. I think there'll be, there'll be more. Do you feel on. like a statesman, like an older statesman in this game? Yeah, I feel because I think I've barked enough at people. And, you know, <laughs> and I've um, tried to keep my business on the road, on the line. And there's a couple of times, as like I said, during COVID and other times where I just really felt like going and packing it in. Because life is short. Yeah. It, it is short. And I'd say the fun has left the industry, but I'm still, still I still feel responsible. Yeah. For. Do you still love the industry? You talk about how much you love Northern Ireland while you're staying here, but do you still love the industry? 
I'm starting to fall. Uh, I'm falling out of love a wee bit with the policy and the way it's going. And right. it did when I knew it was adding up. And it's not just about the money, but you need the money to make it work. Yeah. And um, I think as as I said before, nothing surprises me. But God, goodness, goodness, what what what's around the next corner? Yeah. You know, um, with with with, with increases, we've got another minimum wage coming at us very soon. Um, I just wish it was more linked the government, the business, and there's absolutely none whatsoever. None. Um, so it's a bit of a car crash, really. Yeah. You know. Do you worry about your health with all this? I mean, because, like, stress stress is a big killer. Like, I'm 52, you're 63. In our age bracket for men, stress yeah. is one of the biggest killers for our age. Do you worry about stress? Do you worry about your health through all this? I, I, I do worry about my, my health. I mean, when I was pretty heavy about, about 10 years ago, I can't, I took sleep apnea. Hmm. I didn't know what sleep apnea was. Yeah, it's a breathing thing, right? Yeah, and I had yeah. to sleep with a mask on for four years um, wow. because I couldn't breathe. I stopped breathing in my sleep like that. Wow. And the next size, then it just started to train. That like, would terrify me. That would absolutely, it, it would absolutely terrify, terrify me. Terrify. And sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and the mask would be stuck over here because it's blowing air in your face. But I had to do it or else I would have a heart attack or stroke. So I battled mm. it, battled the weight off. I think I took about five stone off and I survived it. Mm. During that time, or just before that time, um, my, my father was deaf, and it's a hereditary thing, And uh, apart from working in the kitchen. So I'm more or less completely deaf, or right. one in each ear. Right, okay. If I t- take those out, I'll not be able to hear you speak. Really? Wow. Now, I never knew that. On the back of that, and, and I'm, I, I've never been shy about talking about my deafness. Hmm. I think there's a few programs that are going to be made that are going to be trailing me over the next couple of years to see how I get on hmm. because hearing aids are improving implants are improving the hearing I've got used to but with the hearing I've got very severe tinnitus hmm. so that comes along at the back my of hearing's it. going but that's me DJing and going, yeah. you know, I've been DJing for over 20 years I've been going to gigs for 40 years Yeah, so it's got to affect you yeah, yeah it's, it's taking its toll I can, I can, and I, I find it very frustrating it's, it's embarrassing sometimes in the restaurant if you walk past a customer and they go to speak to you and you haven't, you haven't heard but it. most people can't hear in a restaurant because there's yeah, a constant like, hubbub right yeah, yeah. and everything else is going on it's very difficult to, 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 for anyone with even perfect hearing to hear anything in a restaurant yeah so the hearing and the tinnitus is what I would worry about health wise and I have to manage it um, because whenever you're sleeping at night, I have to have like a water machine or something to go over the top wow. of the tennis because it's just a, just a constant ring. And if you go into another room, you take it with you. You can't leave it. Can't leave you. Wow. Um, the suicide rate with tennis is crazy. I know. I know. You know, we, I, I belong to a branch of people who who have tennis and mainly based in America and California and stuff. And we would try to communicate quite a lot to see if there's a cure if it's if, if there's anybody getting any better but they have to say they have all these cures and devices but nobody's beaten tinnitus as yet mm. you know um there's more talk about beating cancer than there is beating tinnitus oh. and i know cancer is very very difficult but tinnitus is a friggin nightmare yeah. you know it really is a nightmare but i'm living with it and if i can free my mind around it michael you've all this sorry you've all this going on you've got tinnitus yeah. you've got all this stuff with the restaurants the stress and all this you have a lot going on. You you you're you're spinning a lot of plates. Pardon, it's all all yeah. pun intentional. Yeah. and you know, you're spinning I, a lot of I, plates. I, the same I went time. last week about you get a when Joe Toner's a great hearing man about maybe getting an implant. Wow, but, you know, I've got an implant only because I still have my hair, and I see a lot of people. You, you have rest- a good wig of hair there, like uh, you do have a good I, wig I, of hair. I see a, a lot a lot of people in the restaurant who have got implants, right? And it's shocking. Look, I don't want to walk around with a plug in my head in the restaurant. Where I just yeah. go. 
But I think it's safe to say you're keeping your hair for the rest of your life. You've had 63, you've not lost it. Absolutely. I think you're, you're going to be okay there. And my, fa my, fa my father <laughs> lived, he was 95, and he, he still had his hair. Right. And it was black and silvery grey like my own. Yeah. You know, so um, I, th I thank goodness for that. And that was something else you had to deal with as well, the death of your father. You took that, that was very difficult for me. It you. was, um, my father was, um, I was very close to my father. Yeah. He, was, he, was, he was a good man, a very Christian man. Right. Um, and I had a, he had a very serious heart attack when he was 70. Um, he did recover. And my mother had been all over the shop. She suffered a lot from depression. She liked a lot of a few drinks and whatever. So he was very Christian. Um, and after the heart attack, he decided he wanted to make a country music record. Get out. Yes, he wanted to go to Nashville. And Mr. McRae, the great Reverend William McRae, arranged for him to go to Nashville. <laughs> okay. So he got on the plane to go to Nashville. He stopped at Atlanta. Heading on down to Nashville, and I was just going up to see my mother. They lived in Bally, Ballymoney at the time. And as the, as the people opened the door, they lived in a fold. As the a, as a lady opened the door, she says, I'm so sorry to hear about your mother. He was only two hours in the air, and she dead. Oh, my God. She died. So then my wife, Kate, who would hear a lot better than me, because I couldn't talk to people in Atlanta with my hearing, and we had to get my father back on the same flight. Told all the staff not to tell, not to tell him, not to tell him what had happened. He managed to get on a public phone, phoned one of the restaurants and said, Megan's had to go home because it's Mother's Day. Oh. So back on Atlanta, handing out business cards about how wonderful Dean is and this, talking to all the people on the plane. And it shows, you know, experience is a wonderful thing and see mm -hmm. age can be a wonderful thing. And when I met him coming back off the plane in Dublin, I couldn't cope emotionally. I just couldn't cope with some bits. And he was fine. Hmm. He was fine, even though he loved my mother. Never been apart for years, for mm -hmm. 30, 40 years, never been apart. I was only time being apart and she died. And then he came back and he, he remarried. He married he remarried a lady who was blown apart in the first Abaclorn bomb, who lost one of her legs and some of her sight. And they were married for about 20 years after that. So wow. he just he, he just went last year. And I had a conversation with him the day before he was died. He was just confused because he knew where he was going. He was just worried about what he was leaving behind. Right. You know, and what was going to happen to the restaurant and what was going to happen to my son and could, could, what could we do? And he just got totally confused. And he died the next day. Just went. Yeah. You know, and that, that was, that was hard for me. It was hard, you know. Of course. Um, he was a, he was, he was a good man. Yeah. You know, there's not, there's not a day that goes by and think about him, you know, but, but that's it. We'll see, see him someday. But he sounds very similar to you. Like your father he had a very sort of philosophical view of life, which you seem to have as well. You seem, I, I think no matter what happens, you seem to be on the right side of, of what to do, that you, you've got the right priorities with life. He was a better man than me. You know what I mean? being modest, probably. No, he was a better man than me. You know, he definitely was. His values were better. His values were stronger. He treated people probably better than me. You know, I mean, you've got to be hard when you're in this business. Mm. You know, and sometimes I would say things to people, but... Maybe I'd regret saying, you know. No, everyone does that. It doesn't make you a bad person. You know, it, it was this, there's a very well-educated boy who works in my kitchen and he, he was trained as a scientist or something. And the other week, he was standing with a bowl of cream and he was putting it into the bin. He said, what are you doing with that fucking cream? What are you doing that for? He says, I whip too much. You know, things like that. Right. Well-educated people doing stupid things and then yeah. they go, fucking cheap. And, you know, and then I probably should teach people 
better and be, be nicer to them whenever things like that happen. But I don't want to go off on them. I know, but there's too many other things going on to kind of maybe do that or pay attention to that. But at least, see, see the thing, it could be worse. You could be doing that and not be aware you're doing it. Absolutely. You're actually aware you're doing it. Which which is a good thing, but when I was when I was in the, in the bad old days of wanting the Michelin star and wanting the to be the best cook in the world, mm. and when I had my own restaurant, you know, I'd be quick. I wanted to touch everything. Mm. I wanted anything that moved. I was touching, and I'd throw a plate. Mm. I'd do this, to do that, throw a pan, and I'd it be. And you could see that, you know, you could see that sort of Marco Pierre White sort of thing coming out that you you were quite quite vicious. Yeah, in a lot of ways. And at the end of the day. It was only a plate of food. Yeah. You know, and when I probably look at it now, and then you go back to where we started with the Jay Rayner thing, imagine if the plate of food had been crap. I know. You know, so it's a double-edged sword all yeah. the time. For someone who, I mean, every goal you set yourself, you've succeeded at it. You know, throughout your life. Like you said, there were some things that didn't work, but everything that you want to work did work. Yeah. So what are your goals now? Health, I suppose. That's it, but how, how can you, what do you, what steps are you taking to sort of maintain Well, that? I mean, I, I try to drink plenty of water. I still drink too much alcohol. Um, everybody in this business probably does. Mm. Um, I try to walk, I try to run, I try to exercise, I try to program my mind mm. to what's ahead of me and what's not ahead of me. Um, there's a lot of people in this business just go off the edge. Yeah. There's not many, there's not many shifters. There's very few survive to your age in this business. Still in business, if you know what I mean. Look, e either, either their lifestyle takes them, or they just fail the business. To be your age at that, it's still here. Yeah, it's quite yeah. Simple. There's not many. There's not yeah. many of my age that are still here yeah, at yeah. that, and um, I, I feel I'm still fresh enough. <laughs> you know, and I feel as if of another good ten years um, in me. I've got a little place in the Algarve which I go to. I used to go once a month actually before COVID, mm. and then I wasn't there for two years. Wow. And I. I haven't been for a few months, but I go there and it's close to the water. Mm. I don't like to, um, I used to travel, but now I only travel there. I go from Belfast to Faro and I've got a taxi for 15 minutes mm. and I'm sitting on the terrace. I've got a car there, I've got everything there, so yeah. I don't really want to go anywhere else. No. And I'm a happy boy there. So that, that, but I'm still working, I've still got the iPad, I'm still on the phone, mm. I'm still making sure the business is, 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 is ticking over. Um, so that, that would help. I love the sun. Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck to you for the rest of it. Good. That's right. Before we finish off today, let's take a minute or two to pause with Owen O'Kane, who has some great advice on how we can be kind to our mind. My name is Owen O'Kane. I'm a psychotherapist, Sunday Times bestselling author and former NHS lead for mental health. And today I'm going to be talking about anxiety. Now anxiety is something that we all experience from time to time. It's a normal human process. You know, anxiety mechanisms keep us safe and protected. So it's normal to have anxiety. However, the problem is when anxiety becomes exaggerated, it can feel very, very uncomfortable. Sometimes the sense of threat is greater than it needs to be. And that means that we live in a state of feeling on guard. Now, what does that look like? It means that you can experience anxiety in your body. You might feel like you've got knots in your stomach, tension in your chest, headache. Generally, you might feel heavy. You might notice your mind is in overdrive, thinking too much, worrying about lots of stuff, almost feeling like your head could explode. And of course, emotionally, it can feel challenging. You might feel dread, overwhelm, just a general sense of uncomfortableness. Now, none of this is abnormal. It just means that your anxiety is highly elevated and exaggerated. And I guess really your responsibility is to kind of reduce that as much as you can. 
And one of the ways you can do that is firstly to accept that your anxiety is normal. I think many people struggle with anxiety because they believe it's abnormal, when in fact it's a normal process. Secondly, I'd really encourage you to think about your anxiety as a helpful thing rather than an enemy because the moment you do that, you change your relationship with your anxiety and it doesn't feel as big a threat. And finally, it's worth remembering, the more you can quieten your mind and body in whatever ways work for you, you will reduce the sense of tension in your body, which will in turn help you quieten the mind and suddenly you will feel a greater sense of control. HNI are the local experts on later life. If you or someone you know is struggling to navigate the challenges of life after 50 and need information or advice on benefit entitlements, housing or care for a loved one, call the HNI advice line in confidence 9 to 5 Monday to Friday on 0808 808 75 75. That's it for this episode of How's the Form? Hope you'll join us next time. House the Forum is brought to you by AGNI and is part of the Good Vibrations Over 50s Men's Health Programme, which is funded by Movember. Movember.